Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Caged In. This is a Caged In interview and I had the absolute pleasure and honour to speak to Brian Taylor, the director of some of your favourite films, uh, whether you know it or not. Uh, he's the one of the two minds responsible for the Crank series, the fantastic films of Jason Statham, something that we talk about in this podcast, as well as uh, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, Gamer, Mum and Dad, and one of the hands in making Happy, the Netflix series, which if you haven't watched it, I'd started watching it just before doing this interview with Brian. So um, I didn't go into it too deep because I felt like I, did, I, I, would, I would be caught out if I kind of like started going, oh yeah, I love, I love, I love Happy. And for him to be like, oh yeah, yeah, what, what did you think of this episode or something like that? Or yeah, so if I don't go too deep into that, that's why uh, I caught a couple of episodes before we recorded this conversation. But I knew I was in for a good conversation with this one because uh, at the start like of the Zoom chat, I asked Brian, I said like, do you mind if I have a beer whilst, you, whilst we do this? And he said to me, give, give, give me two minutes. And he's like, I'm going to join you in having a beer. And when, when that happens, you know, ah, oh, all right, the shoulders can go down, can relax. This is going to be a fun one. And this is a conversation that genuinely doing this podcast, like I'm amazed when anyone who has worked with Cage in any way wants to speak to me. And I don't know, so I was just so excited and like slightly nervous recording this one, but I think it makes for a really, really good conversation. I've uh, I rarely listen back to stuff just because I hate hate the sound of my own voice and I don't know, I'm just overly critical of myself. But I listen back to this one and it's it's really, really good. Like, I don't know, we, we talk about some really interesting stuff and yeah, we get we get an insight into Brian's career and what it was like working with Nick Cage. Uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, like, having this conversation. Um, so, yeah, well, I'll be back at the end to kind of say how good the conversation was and uh, tell you what's coming up next week. So, yeah, enjoy this conversation with the one, the only, the fantastic Brian Taylor. <laughs> Today, guys, I am joined by director, part of the dynamic duo Neville, Dean and Taylor, and of course, the director of both Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance and Mum and Dad, the fantastic Brian Taylor. How are we today, Brian? Doing great, sir. Doing great. Uh, I am under self-quarantine in Austin, Texas, and it's uh, beautiful. Yeah, I could think of worse places to be uh, during a quarantine. Much worse. <laughs> I had, uh, I had uh, barbecue breakfast tacos and beer this morning for breakfast and uh, doing quite well. That sounds like my kind of quarantine. Um, perfect. So, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about how did you get into filmmaking, like, to start off with? Like, where, where did, what was it that you saw and was like, you know what, that's what I want to do? Um... Well, that's a, that's a long story. I mean, I guess, um, you know, I, I guess I always, I always 
wanted to be a filmmaker. I didn't really understand what a director was when I was a kid. Um, I assumed the director was the guy that shot the movie. Uh, and then later I learned that's the, the DP. Uh, but my feeling as a kid, which really hasn't changed much over the years, it's like, well, if you're not shooting the movie, what are you doing? I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, I didn't even understand the director. It seems like a fake job. You know, isn't the guy making the movie, the guy making the movie. So, you know, but I always kind of kept that, kept that attitude. And I, um, and which is, which is why, you know, from the beginning, I've also, I've always had a really strong hand in, um, in the look of anything that I do and the shooting of it. Um, I started out as a DP, at least in the movie business I did, um, and did that for about a year because, you know, I just always wanted to be one of those directors that really knows camera. That's not just relying on, on a DP to sort of set the look for you and tell your story for you. I mean, I wanted to be the type of director that chooses every lens, every angle that understands the light, that understands the movement, um, and really kind of know every aspect of the job. Well, yeah, you can um, definitely see that through through the style that, especially, well, from from the get go with with the crank films, there's just that, I guess it's dynamic and kinetic style of just like you don't know where the camera is going to be. And as I was saying to you before we started recording, like that hit me at an age I guess I would have been about fourteen, fifteen years old when I first saw the first crank film. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, it's this perfect mixture of just like batshit crazy action with moments of just mania and pure beauty i'd say especially like there's a moment always stuck with me in the first crank film where there's like projections of like fish upon the wall um <laughs> and it's just like within that this was, kind I think of it's turtles fucking isn't it yes 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 <laughs> but there's something beautiful about that obviously the way it's lit and just kind of like within this almost it's hard to pin what genre the crank films are right they're kind of a beast unto their own yeah they're pretty absurd i mean it's a great that's that's a great i think it's the ideal age to encounter the crank movies is 15 <laughs> <laughs> you know preferably you know if you're like one of those kind of glue sniffing 15 year olds um I, I may have divulged elements of my past uh, on, on this podcast, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll leave them for people to dig around and find. So um, I'll, I'll. But I think, but I, yeah, but I think I think on those movies, you know, Mark and I were like definitely uh, pioneers of sort of this do-it-yourself Gonzo kind of uh, filmmaking, uh, and you know, uh, it's fun to look back on those movies because we really didn't know what we were doing. Um, and we're just sort of making it up as we go along. But I will say that um, pertinent to this podcast, when we finally got that movie set up and it was a question of casting, um, Nick Cage was one of the first names that came up. Oh, wow. We, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we really wanted Nick to be uh, Jeff Chelios <laughs> at the time. But he was, he was, and, you know, obviously he was at a different place in his career when it was, that was 2006. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we just, you know, honestly, we just couldn't afford him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, can you imagine? Can you imagine the Crank movies with Nick? They they would be a totally wilder beast maybe than they are. But I think, I, well, I would love to like thank you for, for the casting of Jason Statham because I feel like we realized his proper 
comedy chops and just playing this straight man down the line kind of he didn't realize the kind of magic that he had and kind of really utilized it probably later in his career when we saw like his turn in spy where he's kind of a turn of like comedy genius like like he he, he steals that movie and it, i think it's very yeah. much yeah your, your guys like kind of bringing that out of him in those movies well yeah so when his name came up um it's so funny because like now it's hard to picture anybody else in that role, but that's, that's the, that's the, that's the way it always is. You know, um, once a person has made it their own, it's really hard to see it another way. But, um, but I, when we first met Jason, uh, yeah, I didn't even want to meet with him honestly, because my feeling was like, I love that guy, but that's, that's Guy Ritchie's dude. Yeah. 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 And I was like, yeah, I mean, that's Guy Ritchie's dude. So it's like, we want to get our own guy. You know, we want to, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't want to use Guy Ritchie's guy. And, you know, obviously, you know, I, I had a lot of love for Guy Ritchie. I mean, you know, to me, that was like, uh, him and Tarantino were like the up and coming balls to the walls filmmakers that we just like, everybody wanted to be like that, you know, so, but we don't want to copy him. We wanted to do our own version. Right. So I said, nah, I don't know. I don't know about Statham. And also, also, uh, the character was supposed to be an LA based guy, you know, so that so having, having a Brit do it felt a little weird too, but, but we agreed to meet him. And if you've ever had the good fortune of sort of being in Statham's orbit, hanging out with him or talking with him for any period of time, you probably know how well that meeting went because he's just like, he's the coolest dude, you know? And the first thing that he said was, guys, I got to tell you, I don't do comedy. <laughs> and I was like, well, first of all, I've seen you in the Guy Ritchie movies, and I kind of disagree because you're fucking hilarious in those movies, number one. Number two, it kind of works better if you just play it straight and let all the absurd things happen around you. Um, so I don't see that as a problem at all. And then, you know, after you get to know him, you're like, the, the act, he, he wanted to know, should I do this with an American accent? Absolutely not. Like, this is your thing. You know, there's little people in LA from all over the place. Yeah, okay, yeah. Nobody will question it. Nobody's going to question it. Just, just do your thing. You know, we want you. And it worked out great. And, yeah. um, and then when the second movie came along, when it came time to do Crank 2, well, now we knew it was Jason. So now I can write distinctly for his voice. So I'm actually putting in sort of rhyming slang and, you know, things that I know he'll say really well. I'm just playing into that. And also we had the chance in the second movie to not just have him be a straight man, but actually do straight up slapstick physical comedy. And he's so good at it. I mean, he's hilarious. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guys. So, so Nick Cage is a guy who's probably, we've seen, we've seen probably every color in the paint box for Nick Cage. He's had the kind of career where he's, he's given us, kind of every possible thing that an actor can do. Yeah. And that's, a, and that's a blessing. It's an amazing thing to have a career like that because there's a lot of guys that are like Statham or another example is Christopher Maloney, who I just did this show, this television show, Happy. Yeah. Fan again, fantastic. Like, And this is, the, this is the kind of guy, him and Statham both, you know, a lot of actors never have a chance to show you everything that they can do. You know, so, so Statham, for instance, you know, yeah. He was very monotone and he was just sort of like this surly presence. And he, you could tell he was great, but he had so much more to offer. 
and, and Christopher Maloney too, you know, everybody knew him from this SVU show, but that guy is like just incredibly good. You know, he can do everything that an actor can do. He's incredible with comedy. And a lot of these guys just never have a chance to stretch those wings and really do it. Um, but then it's funny when you think of Nick because well, yeah. not, only, not only has Nick showed you over the course of his career, everything that he can sort of do all these different aspects of it, but usually all in the same movie, he can do that. Well, yeah. And he'll find these kind of pockets in films that like, he'll still find a different shade of that color within yeah. different roles. So like you may have seen like kind of manic guy looking for revenge, but then he gets cast in like uh, Panos Cosmotos's uh, Mandy. And then it's like, Oh no, now we've got this kind of art house man seeks revenge and it's like this is this is a different shade of red as it were than we've yeah. seen before and it's he's yeah he's, he's an ever surprising like presence and i i like when it, yeah when it comes to the ghost rider film that uh, you guys did with him uh recently i've been watching some interviews with nick and he said that um obviously the first film he didn't get the opportunity to do to be the ghost rider he just played johnny cage mm-hmm. But he, yeah, and he also said that, like, seeing you guys work and kind of the way you, the way you filmed, the way you were on wires, the way you used the camera, just the kind of risks you took made him want to be kind of whipped around on wires and kind of do the stunts and do whatever needed to be done to yeah. just, like, get get the best performance for the film. Like, do yeah, do you think that you guys being in the thick of it really helped to bring out whether it's Statham or Cage or even like, yeah, Jared Butler and The Gamer. Do you think that kind of way of working pulls out those performances in, in, in your actors? I hope so. I mean, um, you know, we, we started out never really having a second unit. You know, we want to do everything ourselves. We operated cameras ourselves and, you know, my theory of shooting action kind of came out of, um, you know, the Road Warrior movies <laughs> or, or Evil Dead 2. You know, these movies where it's like, you can't believe nobody got hurt making the movie. It looks dangerous, you know? So the feeling was always like, um, if we're putting ourselves on the line, we're putting ourselves in danger making the movie, that's going to come through and you're going to feel that. And it's going to feel more dangerous. It's going to feel more urgent um then if you have this this feeling that the whole movie was kind of created on a computer um oh yeah there's a, there's a great clip i saw of idris elba talking about uh, uh mark neville dean's like famous rollerblades holding onto motorbikes kind of camera like yeah to get to get shots and uh, i think it's the, the quote is something like oh he's bloody mental like that that's kind of like idris elba's summation of like the kind of the way you guys worked and like yeah. i think especially ghost rider there's there's a lot of like behind the scenes footage and stuff like that and you kind of see the way you guys get to work and yeah I'll, and well, it's, it's fun you know making movie making movies is fun you know and uh yeah, of course i never uh i had i had a chance to hang out on one of david fincher's sets um one time he was shooting zodiac and I got to hang out for the day. It was a really big thrill for me because I'm a huge fan, as I think any filmmaker would be. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's kind of the best of the best. But, but man, 
it was so boring to watch him work because, you know, he, he's sitting there with a headset and by the way, incredibly nice guy, super smart, very, uh, very, you know, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of make it sound like I, I had, I had a bad experience. It was a great experience, you know, but, but man, super quietly talking into this headset, Mike, and doing 35 takes of a guy answering a phone. And I was like, I am so glad that you work this way so that I get to enjoy the movies that you make, but I can never do it. I just can't do it. You know, it's like we, you know, uh, especially in those days, I mean, we, we just got bored way too easily. And um, I guess it's the counterpoint of, like a life experience, you know, it's like we we were there just as much for what was going on behind the camera as we were for in front of the camera. Well, I guess the counterpoint is like David Fincher is almost like a composer making um, like some kind of overture or like grand piece of music, whereas you guys were making like fast punk rock that both have their own merits but one is made a complete different way where it's everything's written out. You give it to the orchestra. Whereas you guys are there like, fuck it. We know three chords. We've got our instruments. Not obviously not to say that you guys don't know what you're doing, but like the approach is like a bit more ragtag and punk rock in that we're going to be there. We're going to be in and amongst the thick of it and just getting the shots in these kind of, really fascinating and, and, and like interesting way and like i believe i've heard you in other interviews say like you you invented that without not realized that just kind of going we made it up on the spot like <laughs> well yeah i mean it's I, I feel like in those days mark and i were doing like true exploitation movies mm. you know and, and not we, we weren't doing like you know like the uh like the grindhouse tarantino rodriguez <laughs> thing which was sort of like a uh a wink and a nod, you know, kind of like a tribute to to Grindhouse movies. No, we weren't doing tributes to Grindhouse movies. We were making actual Grindhouse movies, yeah, yeah. which you're sort of, uh, you know, in- inherent in the Grindhouse idea is just sort of this desperation to be noticed, you know, and to get effects. And, you know, we, we never really had a lot of money to do these things and we didn't have a lot of um, experience. So it was really just like, you know, what can we do to just get stuff in front of the camera that sort of keeps our adrenaline going. You know, we, we were afraid of getting bored. So, um, so we just kept, we just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And it, you know, it is, it is a punk rock approach. I think, you know, the punk rock is like you're playing in a club and you're bombing and nobody's into it. So you fucking break a bottle over your head. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, okay, I'm going to take a shit on the stage now, like Gigi Allen, because it seems like you guys are tuning out. So that's kind of what the crank movies are is the, the cinematic equivalent of taking a shit on the stage because the audience is tuning out. That's amazing. I couldn't think of a better analogy myself than the crank <laughs> movies being the Gigi Allen of cinema. Yeah. Somebody missed the trick in marketing, I think, there. Yeah, that should have been the poster. <laughs> um, before I'd like, like we jump into talking about like kind of the genesis of the Ghost Rider uh, movie. Um, before that, you guys wrote the um, Jonah Hex movie and were set mm. to 
the set to direct it. Like, obviously, I'm not looking for some kind of like TMZ scoop or anything like that. But like, what was your initial vision that kind of like led you guys to to leave that project? Was it you guys wanted to give it a harder edge or? Yeah, I mean the the Jonah Hex thing is really like a, that's a long story that that probably will take us off. <laughs> yeah, 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 no worries. Too no, far no. from from uh, Planet Nick, but uh, you know, I, I will say that it's, it was a good example of just sort of everything that can go wrong in Hollywood kind of went wrong in that development process. Um, the script that we wrote is, I think, the best thing that we ever wrote. Um, it's not the movie that you saw. <laughs> if you were one of the 12 people to see the movie, it doesn't resemble the script that we wrote at all. Um, and it was, it was just, it was just unfortunate. I mean, uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's a super, it's a super long story. Yeah, yeah, the, no, movie, no, no. the movie's a piece of shit and it's really <laughs> tragic because it would have been so Yeah, good. no, I, I, I'm like, I love, I love these ideas of um, kind of films that w what could have been almost like the sliding doors effect of. Yeah. And like, well, and, and you have to get, you have to develop a really thick skin yeah. in this business, you know, because it's so rare when things make it through to the finish line and have any resemblance to what it is you were trying to accomplish. But I guess. Um, and that's even if they get out of the gate at all. You know, a lot of the most most directors that I know, you know, the best and writers, the best things that they've ever written never got made. You know, they're we're we were frequently judged by our the worst of what we do. You know, like you, you look at so much of it, like whether it's like Hodorowsky's Dune, like it's supposed mm -hmm. to be like this amazing piece of work, and I think there's an actual like bound book that. Uh, Hodorowsky yeah. is read to Nicholas Winding Refn, like, so like, like here it is. Here's my here's my vision. I'll take you through it, and it's like we'll never we'll never we'll never see that. I just I just wanted to like kind of touch on the Jonah Hex thing, just because of that yeah. morbid curiosity I have of those kind of I, I thing. I love that movie. I mean, I just I love the movie that that um, that was written. I really do. I mean, you gotta, you gotta have a thick skin, but that one was a real, that was a heartbreaker. Oh. That was a heartbreaker. That one still stings. And the worst thing about it is, is then the movie comes out and our name is on it as the writers. Oh. It's just like, come on, man. And, and then you have people who are fans actually saying like, look, I know the movie was, I can, I can see what you were trying to do with the script, you know? And said, no, you can't. No, no, no. <laughs> None of that was our shit. <laughs> please don't even don't even be nice you know it was unfortunate so get, getting to yeah ghost rider spirit of vengeance uh how did how did it come about like when did how early on were you guys brought on were you was there a point where you were going to write it as well or yeah well no um no? that 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 movie was uh they were they were getting ready to lose the rights the character so they had a couple months to get this movie into production and if they didn't get it into production they were going to lose the rights um and they had been they had been uh, fucking around with the script for years i mean um the actual script the first draft of the movie that we made 
And then David Goyer is the credited writer. Yeah. Um, the first draft that he wrote is the reason that he's the credited writer was actually written before the first Ghost Rider movie was made. It was set um, in the American Southwest. It was hard R rated. It was like a horror movie and it was fucking awesome. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's a tragedy that we, didn't, that we couldn't just make the original David Goyer version yeah. because that script is badass, you know, it was super dark. There's a sort of a string of the plot that survived through to the version that we made, but you know, over the years it had been rewritten and rewritten. It probably had like 14 rewrites um, with this, you know, there were, and this whole idea of moving it into Europe and sort of trying to, I guess, draft off the success of the National Treasure movies and, um, to kind of bring this sort of ancient relic hunting mythology to it or something like that. Um, and then we had to we had to do a pass on it just to get it into Romania, which is where we shot it. Um, and then we shot parts of it in Turkey. But I mean, the script was the script was just such a mess at that point. You know, it had gone through so many rewrites that it just made no sense at all. Um, and you know, so, sometimes what I like to do is just draw attention to things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I, I added in that voiceover where uh, where Johnny Blaze says, "Why does the devil walk in human form on Earth anyway?" I have no idea. <laughs> well, that was that was that was me talking. Like I really don't know either, guys. I have no idea what the basis of this movie is. But you know, so clearly it wasn't the script that brought us to it. Um, I I love the character of Ghost Rider. I was just a yeah. comic kid, you know. Ghost Rider was badass. And then the idea of just doing a Sony movie with Nicolas Cage, I mean, sounded amazing. It's, it's a no-brainer, right? Yeah, it's a no-brainer. You know, it's so like, well, okay, we got to be in production in a few months, so get on a plane. And, uh, and we just threw it together as best we could and tried to get that thing shooting. Um, I guess if I only, you know, if I have one regret about that project is I wish that we had made a rated R movie. I wish we had had that option, you know, because the idea of doing Ghost Rider as a rated R horror movie, basically a superhero horror movie, I think is really cool. Like that, that actually could be a really worthy addition to the whole superhero genre. You know? Well, well, I think, but it just it just wasn't there for us. From from see from seeing the movie, you can see glimpses, especially like in the humor and like these kind of like comical asides, whether it's the image of um, Idris Elba's character like hanging out of a tree when he kind of <laughs> mentions that by like I was saved by God's grace or I'm, the Anna, the I'm so happy to, <laughs> to have you pull that that shot out because that was just such an improv and post we literally like nobody understood how he survived the fall we we're just like what the fuck do we do we're sitting in, in the editor you know in the, in the editorial room trying to solve this problem somehow so we looked at the outtakes and we found we had footage of him in front of a green screen hanging while he was waiting to do something else, looking kind of bored. Uh, so he said, well, what if we just put, you know, footage of a cliffside, a tree, and then use that and then play a little bit of the French national anthem in the background. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a true B-movie cheat. 
Well, like it's stuff like that, and just kind of like the scent, like some of the sensibilities of it, and like I guess it's it's that thing. And I think we would have fast tracked like to like if it was a hard R, we would have like well like an R at least we would have fast tracked all this kind of like now we're getting it with like the Deadpool's and the Logans and stuff like that, and it's like. We could have we could have already been playing in that sandbox already, as opposed yeah. to. Well, yes, uh, maybe. Uh, I, I I definitely think we would have we would have taken the humor there, but when I say thinking back, I mean you're right. Uh, taking the humor in that direction, or I, I, actually more accurately in kind of a crank direction, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, would have been a cool thing to do. And, but when I'm talking about rated R, I just feel like it should have been more violent. Violent, yeah, yeah. Well, and just more scary, you know, and it really treat the Ghost Rider as this horrifying character that murders people horribly. Well, it is that thing as well. Like you kind of want to see like, not, not in this kind of grotesque, like torture porn way, but like seeing as his thing is, he is, seeking like vengeance against wrongdoers you kind of want to see them in pain so when he hits them with that like fiery like with the whip that kind of like turns them to ash you want to see like a burning skin and you want to see them just kind of you want to see them hurt basically as like as, as kind of like sadistic as that sounds on like a viewer's point of view you kind of you want to see like but yeah especially with like such a Right. Well, that, I mean, that's, that's vengeance, right? I mean, yeah, the, exactly. The, the, we, you know, to let the unjust feel the same pain that their victims felt. You know? So with, yeah, with, like with Ghost Rider, like it, like it feels to me, like, did you intentionally like, not that it disregards the first one, but like, I feel like you could watch it as a totally separate separate yeah thing of, yeah no it's, it has it really has no relation to the first movie and um was that was that in the script or do you were you guys with the like kind of uh were you did you guys ha have a say in that it, i think it was in the script i mean um this thing opens up with him in eastern europe you know so there's been a lot of water under the bridge now we could have sort of called back to the first movie in flashbacks or this or that, but it just, it's kind of like, why? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it didn't seem at any point, like if we have any kind of real estate to use for backstory, let's use it to explain what the fuck is happening in this movie, because it was pretty convoluted. You know, we didn't, so it just didn't seem to be a, a good reason to do that. So how was it meeting Nick for the first time? Obviously, was this, was Ghost Rider the first time you met him, or did you? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean that was the best part of the whole of the <laughs> whole thing. Um, you know, we flew out to New Orleans. Basically, we were going to Romania to start prepping the movie, and the idea was we're going to stop in New Orleans and just hang out with Nick for a few hours and talk it over with him. You know, so so we flew in, we met him, and in New Orleans and showed him a bunch of artwork that we had developed. And kind of the first thing that I wanted to talk to him about was this idea of actually playing the Ghost Rider, you know? Um, Cause that to me was like, well, 
this is what I think uh, is going to make this movie feel completely different and, and hopefully cooler than the first movie is, you know, that was just a stunt guy portraying Ghost Rider or a, I, don't, I don't know who it was in the first movie, but, but, but Nick is such an incredible and creative physical actor. Let's approach this movie as a dual role. You're going to play two roles. You're playing Johnny Blaze and you're playing this ancient sort of Egyptian demon, you know, that is that we know is the ghost rider. And, and, and you're going to play them both completely different. And we want you to develop a whole physical language for the ghost rider, um, which played right into his whole mystique of like Kabuki theater and all that kind of, and, and, you know, basically the idea that when we see the ghost rider in action in this movie, there's going to be no doubt that that's you. Well, from what to... only one person could 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 do that characterization. That really got him excited. You know, that was he was like, "That's super cool." And that became the basis of pretty much all of our pre-production work with him. Um, was just kind of coming up with that physical language and those kind of ideas. And a lot of those sequences just evolved out of our our conversations of, uh, you know, what's going through the mind of this of this demonic. Creature, he doesn't think like we do. Well, yeah, and I definitely feel like, as as a viewer of the film, that him playing the Ghost Rider informs the way that he plays Johnny Blaze. Like, I think the way I've like described it to a friend is, Johnny Blaze is almost like it's. It gives me the image of like a cocaine user who hasn't got any cocaine or just has this kind right. of like has this thing inside like inside of him that he's trying to i i guess like i'll say this you don't have to agree but just uh robert downey jr's performance in everything a man who really wants to take cocaine but can't in, uh-huh. <laughs> in the, it's just kind of that energy and like from hearing from yeah like interviews with nick about the stuff he did on set whether it's like the kind of voodoo makeup and yeah. He sewed like um, Egyptian artifacts into his jacket and stuff like that. Sounds like he like he threw himself into the role and like you can you can you can tell and it's the the the, the thing the thing for me is very much knowing that this could have been an art. Oh, I wish it was that, but like you see these glimmers of things that I'm like, wow, this is great, like very much your guys direction and nick's performance as two of like the things that for me that shined so brightly in that film yeah well i mean i i I love what he did with it you know i loved the ghost rider in that movie i think is really cool i like the character design you know i like the uh i like the way he looks Yeah, yeah that with the black bubbling tar jacket you know and the dark burned skull i like the way he moves i loved all the visual language and the, and the physical language that nick brought to it you know that to me is the coolest thing about the movie um you know i i'll always wonder you know what that movie could have been given another you know a couple months to work on a script and to work on pre-production and to really get it you know where it needed to be um but 
But I think there's certain things in the movie that are super fun to watch. And most of it is the stuff involving the Ghost Rider and Nick either uh, being Ghost Rider or transforming into Ghost Rider. I mean, and he definitely did bring the desperation of an addict. You know, that was an idea we talked about a lot. You know, and then when he gives into it, it feels horrible, but it feels good at the same time. You know, it's just kind of like the rush of giving into that dark, that dark side. And he was a guy who was really battling with drinking at that time. You know, I don't think that's any secret. Um, uh, and he was winning that battle. Um, but, but as always, anybody who fights that battle, you backslide and, you know, you have failures and successes and you go back and forth and it's just, it's a hard road, you know? So he could really relate, you know, to sort of that aspect of it and like kind of the metaphor of Johnny Blaze um, as an addict who is constantly being pulled back, you know, and sort of the temptation, the temptation is right there to just give into it. So you mentioned working with Nick and that like, that was one of the like, well, the highlight of doing Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. You must've enjoyed it a lot because obviously you worked with him again in your first solo directing film, Mum and Dad. Um, I watched Mum and Dad for the first time today to get prepared for this because I try and go in a lot of the time to the films quite fresh and I was always quite I don't know not not bitter but like I remember around the time this movie coming out I'd I'd been offered a chance to go to like a press screening and I had to I, I had to work so I was like oh man and it was like I wish I'd seen it on the big screen especially seeing it today because it is just it's fucking great, man. I sort of like, you. I absolutely just a pressure cooker of a film, <laughs> and like, I don't know how. Yeah, where did where did that idea come from? Is that something that's been like, was brewing in your mind for for a while? Or um, no, I mean a lot of a lot of times it's just um, you know, we're always trying to think of things that we haven't seen before. Yeah, you know, so. Um, that's one of those, it's just an idea you come up with and think like, wow, well, nobody's ever done this. So, so that's good, right? Like, let's do it, you know? And then once you get into it, you, you start to find out why no one's done it before. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, that was, it's, a uh, <laughs> Nick is amazing in the movie, I think. And so is Selma. Oh, oh like... Oh. Both of them are fantastic, and like, even from the get-go, by saying like the pressure, like that, yeah, it's just so tense. And that even from like, you kind of see this dis disdain and like, almost like play with horror tropes in that way of like, the way the way it's shot and the way that like, the music builds. Like, there's a scene that really stuck out to me of like when Nick's like tit like going to tickle the kid, but it's almost got like this menacing tone to it. Yeah. Like, it's another film that like Did you like did you like the you like the music? Oh the mute yeah the music's fucking great. Yeah 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 yeah. That was a uh, an Australian EDM guy called Mr. Bill. I've been a fan of for a long time. I love using guys that like have never done a soundtrack before. And uh he's just such a great sound designer too. Yeah 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 you know, so he had never done a soundtrack before and he actually sat in the editorial room with us, set up his whole rig. And then we just kind of like, 
he, we would be editing, he'd be jamming on stuff. He'd say, what do you think of this? You know, we did four tracks, bang them in. It was just all kind of like, we just kind of made it up on as we went. I love the soundtrack. Really good. So with, with mom and dad, was, was Nick the first choice or was there anyone else in mind when it came to the character of Brent? He's the first guy that, that I approached. I mean, obviously, um, cause the, you know, the nature of the movie is, you know, dad transforms, <laughs> you know, he starts as one thing and he ends as something else and nobody can really transform into a werewolf like, like Nicholas, you know, especially we didn't have a ton of money to make them make the movie, you know, so I knew we didn't have, you know, we weren't gonna have a lot of time to shoot action. We weren't gonna have a lot of money for CGI or anything like that. So the actors needed to be the special effect. You know, the actors were the, they were the production value. You know, oh. so you needed actors who could really go there. Oh, and they they de they definitely are like yeah like just the like turn on a dime like I think Selma Blair like give, like brings it so well that in moments you're like oh maybe because it's never explained why why they why they go after their kids and like yeah. I kept second guessing like her especially where I was like oh no 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 maybe she loves her kids and then it was like. <laughs> <laughs> oh no no she's got she's got a meat tenderizer and is about to about to kill her daughter like, both of those both of those sentiments can coexist you know? yeah 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 yeah. and like like we love you but sometimes we just want you know <laughs> um, there's yeah, isn't that funny because selma was actually i was talking about nick cage how you know we had wanted him and crank yeah. um selma blair auditioned for crank for the amy smart role and she was awesome. I mean, she was absolutely amazing. Um, she almost got it. So there is an alternate universe where Crank was Nick Cage and Selma Blair. And their mom and dad was Jason Statham and uh, and Amy <laughs> Smart. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's probably you know an, an alternate reality where that happened, but but it actually it did give me a chance to kind of like see what it would be like to have those two together. They were great together I and mean, they have such good chemistry and Selma's just like wow. Well yeah, the moments that really like stick with you of these kind of like it's, the film itself is just like ramping up the tension and this chaos and chaos. And obviously with 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 a pressure cooker, you sometimes gotta let a little steam out. And we get these in these kind of flashbacks to the past. Yeah. And, like that that scene with the pool table is just <laughs> fuck me it's so like i just i felt like somebody had walked into like yeah walked in with a sock with a couple of pool balls in it and was hitting <laughs> me like because like the like, just the intense emotion that you feel and just this kind of i don't know it's like would they have needed this kind of reason to want to like kill it like kill their kids or like almost at that point it's like would they would they have just killed each other eventually and like right. <laughs> um, well yeah i mean the whole thing ended up bringing them together yeah i'm not sure if uh, yeah anyone's ever mentioned this in the past but like one of the things that mom and dad really reminded me of is um the work of david lynch in that it's kind of this idea of what's behind the picket fence like especially right. Uh, blue velvet and like twin peaks of like everything on the outside looks like the perfect family and we very much see it in their house with the almost 
I, I find it quite grotesque myself the like live laugh love and like the, yeah. the kind of platitudes written on the wall of this kind of I love that stuff well and you know when we that stuff came from honestly when we were scouting we shot the movie in louisville kentucky and we were scouting real houses we didn't have the money to build a set so we were going to find a house where we could do it and uh you know we scouted a lot of communities like that with a lot of super nice people and you're looking through their houses and they all had that stuff, you know? And so it's just like, man, we have to just completely um, pollute this house with all of these, you know, sort of uplifting messages that obviously don't reflect anything going on in the house. Well, all that stuff was based on real places we saw. Well, there's just amazing, like visual storytelling as well. Cause like one of the things that I, yeah commend you for is that you know how to make a whip smart like short film this is like the runtime of this is 85 minutes but you learn so much about like the lead characters in such a short amount of time like nick cage's character waking up on his desk with porn playing on his like computer tells you so much about the character of brent more than like dialogue or kind of like and yeah, even the flashes to him in the, in, in the sports car, like. So how? So so let's talk about the him in the sports <laughs> car. So uh, I didn't know how we were going to do that. Um, my thought was we were just going to do it with a with a stunt guy, like a stand-in, and then somehow I would get like a still, I would get like a still frame or do a do a capture of Cage's face, and then superimpose, you know, sort of like I would map it on. I ended up doing this technique actually. With the um, with the mom at the end when she goes flying through the air, we took a capture of, of the actor's face yeah. and uh, mapped it onto a stunt uh, stunt girl. Um, but I, I thought maybe I'd do something like that with him. Um, and then one day in prep, while we were putting this thing together, you know, one of the PAs said, "This guy is here. He he wants to know if, if he can do something on the movie." And the guy walks up and literally it looks like a young Nick Cage <laughs> with the mustache, the whole, I'm just looking at this guy like, are you kidding me? Like, dude, you look like young Nick. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. He's like, well, you know, like I'll do anything on the movie. If you want me to like be a PA, if you want to do this or that, it's like, no, I have actually the perfect thing for you. <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't think we have the money to CGI Nick's face on this guy. Anyway, so we just use that guy as is. And it was just pure luck of a, of a Nick, of a young Nick Cage lookalike. This kid was probably like 19 years old, just having to wander onto the set. Amazing. Um, so he's like, "Do you want me to shave the mustache?" I'm like, no, <laughs> no, no, keep it on. Yeah, we want a Hyde McDonough look. We want that kind of 1987 <laughs> Nick Cage. That's the best part. I think like one of the things that yeah, this well, it's just the. F- the films, I can't, I, I, I could probably go on for ages just saying like, it's, it's fucking amazing, especially from like the like kind of 60s opening. Like it's almost reminded me of like a kind of like 60s sitcom, like title, title cards and stuff like that. And yeah. then this, I don't mean like, this might seem like a weird comparison, but like, to begin with, gave me the feeling of like watching uh, Shaun of the Dead for the first time. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the Edgar Wright film Shaun of the Dead. In that, like, 
it obviously plays with like that horror element of like a zombie apocalypse like a zombie invasion or whatever it may be and just has that feeling of just dread like we see these parents waiting outside the school we kind of <laughs> like like and it's just it's i don't know, and, like, you know we're, we're bringing in a lot of you know uh that scene was populated with extras from the town that we shot in and they didn't know much about they didn't know anything about the movie it was just a bunch of parents we said you know parents and kids show up together as pairs as much as possible so you know a couple hundred people show up at this high school and i just basically told everybody the premise of the film it's like okay all you guys are zombies you just want to kill your kids <laughs> nobody else's kid you just want to kill your kids you'll you'll go past anybody else's kid just to get to yours everybody got it they were like yep no problem. I mean, they didn't need any coaching at all. They were just right on, right on it. Oh, I guess they've been method acting since their kids were born, right? Yeah, they were like, "This is great. I, this, like, this is this is a, an opportunity to do what I think about most days, anyway." Well, yeah, you very much leave like a the bomb under the table as well. Like, if you know when you know the premise of what is going on, and then obviously you know that Selma Blair's character's sister is pregnant and expecting at any moment i yeah. just i think that just built up the dread and tension in me like especially as uh yeah like a father myself having like a 18 18 month old i was like oh no i know where this is going i'm not sure <laughs> if i'm gonna enjoy it but it's gonna happen it's gonna be terrifying <laughs> that was a that was a fun sequence it's it's great like even like the use of like i don't know the go the like the gopro footage and i can't help but think if there were to be another crank film i think gopros would probably be used in the most fascinating and fun way ever right maybe we probably just shoot it on an iphone <laughs> but yeah all of that that's you look back on those movies and uh you know, all the stuff we did flying around with cameras. It kind of seems kind of, I mean, it's almost run of the mill now, you know, because it's so easy to do that now. Right. Back then, those were huge cameras. I mean, we shot Crank 1 on like a giant Sony ENG looking, you know, like almost like a news camera. This thing was huge, <laughs> you know? And if we if we had the cam, you know, some of these tiny cameras now, back then, we could have done 10 times as much. amazing well let's kind of wrap up the conversation by just talking about like you moved from movies to television was that was that just an organic choice were you like this is where this is the exciting sandbox to be playing in now like kind of move it is i mean honestly it's like it's pretty hard to make uh well look something like crank could not get a wide theatrical release now um, it just couldn't happen. And, you know, there's a handful of guys these days that are making really potent, interesting, fucked up movies that are able to get a wide release. There's a handful of them and mostly they're working in horror. You know, I'm thinking of guys like Ari Aster. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's just, there's just not that many and, um, less and less all the time. So, you know, unless you want to do 
a true indie movie like mom and dad, you know, it was a really fun movie to make, but not a lot of people saw it, you know, and that's the fate of most indie movies. It's like, uh, yeah, they just end up on some streamer somewhere waiting for people to discover, wait, waiting for the next pandemic so that people will discover them <laughs> as they work their way through the end screen to the end screen of Hulu. Um, but if you really want to be, if you really want to do fucked up, groundbreaking, strange cinema and be in the zeitgeist and really get to people's eyeballs and have people talking about it and stuff, it's really television now. I mean, television's like the Wild West. There's so many, there's so much need for content um, and there's so much reach that you can really do crazy stuff and actually get it in front of people um, in a way that you sort of can't with features anymore. So, um, well, yeah, with Happy, you directed the seven episodes of the first season, right? The... Uh, no, I, I think I did. Let's see, one, two, three, five. I did five episodes of the first season and four or five episodes of the second season, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, but for people that haven't watched it who are listening, it's just absolutely it's it's crank with like it's it's kind of it's hard it's hard to how how would you explain it brian sorry i'm not i'm not doing the best of jobs here it's been a long day <laughs> yeah i mean I, I don't know it's 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 a uh, it's crank with a flying unicorn <laughs> what i'm really sure what that show and it, it just get it just got like between seasons one and two, I feel like it got exponentially weirder. Um, I really like both seasons, but I like season two better. Well, it's that seems to be is 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 that your mo that like each each thing you like if you if you get if you get chance to do a second, whether it's crank or whether it's a second season of Happy, that you're like fuck it, let's make it weirder than it was the first time. Well, yeah, that was the theory of, of Crank 2 as well. And I guess you could say it was sort of the theory of uh, of uh, the Ghost Rider movie. Yeah. You know, it's like, let's just make this exponentially weirder than the first one. I don't know if we succeeded, because the sixth, the first one is pretty weird in its own right, sometimes <laughs> by accident. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, look, I, I just think that, like, probably my, my primary drive as an artist has always just been um, a fear of boring myself and, and boring the audience, you know? So, which is not probably the best, <laughs> it's probably not the best driver of an artist, but I'm sort of stuck with that, you know? So um, generally the longer I'm at something, the more absurd it's gonna get, the more deconstructed, the more punk rock, just the stranger. Um, I can try to be normal for a little while, but but like Nick, it, it, usually normal doesn't last until the third act. Yeah, I I, I, I will <laughs> speak on behalf of I think many people I know who are who are fans of your work. Please never just try and aim for normal because it's the, <laughs> it is the weird and the cuckoo bananas crazy shit that we all love and enjoy. Um, you also had a like you've got a writing credit on the. Aldous Huxley Brave New World uh, mm -hmm. series for yeah I, de I developed that that as a series uh, with Grant Morrison how, like 
How was it? That then, then we kind of we kind of backed off. We we developed it. We got it off the ground um, and into production. And then we sort of backed away because I had to work on season two of Happy. So the show has kind of gone on on its own. Um, and I I haven't even seen any of the I haven't seen any of the footage. So I don't know how it turned out. I hope it turned out okay. <laughs> well, I, I hope so too, man. Well, to wrap things up, um, I know now more than ever, it's probably the worst time to ask what you have coming up, if, if, if anything, or yeah, what, what, what does the future behold for Brian Taylor and what can we look to? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for any of us. I mean, right now, um, you know, like a lot of guys in this business, we're just writing, developing, and, um, you know, sort of behaving as though things are going to go back to normal at some point, you know. Um, but nobody really knows when that is or, or if that is, you know. Are there still going to be movie theaters after this? I don't know. You know, we're... I have friends who are actors and, and production people who, who are convinced that they're going to start shooting in June, you know, they have projects that are on hold. It's like, yeah, but you know, it's going to get warmer and the thing will, will die down a bit. And then we're going to go into production in June. I don't know that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to think there's not going to be any production until next year. I don't know how long it's going to take. So, you know, until then we're just going to keep doing what we always do. try to come up with new ideas and try to, um, try to get these projects off the ground, you know, get, try, try to convince people with money to spend it on the most ridiculous concepts possible. Um, and then hopefully at some point we'll actually be able to film them. Twisted metal, maybe. Ah, man. <laughs> That's another heartbreaker. That's a good oh, one. Sorry, man. Sorry. Good uh, one. Nick was supposed to be in that too. Uh, Nick was going to be sweet tooth. Oh, uh, don't break my heart. Don't break my heart. We could have been on here on the podcast talking about Nick Cage's sweet tooth and twisted metal. Can you imagine? Another in another alternate world, a better world. These are these are all these universes I want to kind yeah, of a better universe than the one we live in. <laughs> well, before before I finally let you go, Brian, um, what's everybody has a crazy Nick Cage story. What, what is yours? If any of them are are kind of for the masses. I honestly can't tell the craziest one, <laughs> but I will tell you, we were talking about his mausoleum and the first, the first time I met Nick, we were in new Orleans and he took both of us out that night. He said, you know, do you, you want to see my mausoleum? I said, well, yeah, of course we do. You know? So we, he, we got in the cab and drove across town. It was the middle of the night. It was like midnight and the, the necropolis was closed. So we had to jump the fence and so we're going, we're basically breaking into a graveyard at night with Nick Cage with a flashlight. <laughs> and he took us to the Monty, he took us to see his, it's, it's a white pyramid, a white marble pyramid. And he told us all about it. And uh, it was pretty spectacular. And then we went and had uh, beignets at Cafe Du Monde. So that sounds fantastic. Did you feel at any moment like you were in a uh, National Treasure sequel? when you're hopping fences and breaking into historical landmarks with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was a National Treasure movie, but <laughs> hanging out with Nick Cage, you are in a Nick Cage movie. Perfect. Well, that is that, what is happening. That is a, that is a perfect uh, 
place to, to to leave it, Brian. It's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Um, I will let I will let everybody know where to find you on Twitter and any links to anything uh, that you yeah. have you have. And it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, man. Yeah, man. Good. To, it's good to meet you. And uh, you know, we are brothers, brothers in cage. Yeah, exactly. Well, Brian, I'll let you get on with your day, and it's been an absolute pleasure. All right. Okay, take get care. Another, get, another, get another pint in you. Yes, please. Well, there we have it. That was an amazing, amazing conversation. Um, and yeah, thanks once again to Brian for giving me some of his time. Uh, now more so than ever. I know. I know. I know. It's probably easier to have conversations with people because they are in their homes but still it's it just blows my mind constantly that that people want to have these conversations and you can hear people are passionate about what they do and that's what I love about doing this podcast I get to speak to these people who love what they do and make stuff that people love as well like I think I've mentioned it in the podcast that crank hit me at like a certain age and it will hit me at the perfect age and so yeah like brian's work has has always has always just been this outsider kind of grindhouse unapologetic at what it is and it's great um i wish i wish i wish i wish we could have seen his twisted metal oh film it would have been so 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 good um i would hope at some point i'd really like i might I might use some pester power to try and speak to mark nibbledean the again talked about in this um and yeah the kind of left or right brain of the kind of operation that that, that they had and this partnership that spawned these amazing movies and obviously we talk about the fact that ghost rider wasn't what it could have been those guys shined that diamond up to the best that they could and you really see their phonetic and fantastic style and their fingerprints are all over that movie well that's enough of me just kind of talking about how great Neville Dean and Taylor are again thanks so much to Brian for this and if you want to get in touch with the Cajun Podcast, you can do that one of many ways, actually. You can either hit me up on social media, which is at Cajun Pod on all the channels, so Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or just email me, which is cagedinpod at gmail.com. As always, leave a rate and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever, wherever you listen. If, if there's a rating system, yeah, like more people can hear it, but more importantly, this week and every week moving forward and we should have been doing it anyway but educate yourselves what you can do to help other people and specifically in this case the black lives matter movement okay so if you can if you can donate money donate money if you can donate time and show solidarity or protest do that if you can just take a moment out of your day to sign a petition or write a letter to your local MP about what you could do or your, your local your, your local official to kind of 
raise your concerns as a citizen. Because if we all do our little pieces, like as we're seeing the protests in America, eventually they can't help but listen to the people. And we can, we, we can, we can do this. We will strive and do what we can to make this better. We can make this a better place to live for all of us. So as always, I've been Petrofats of Lewis. I've been caged in. You've been amazing. Bye-bye. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Drip Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.